This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com WSJ. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. The University of North Carolina's Board of Trustees votes unanimously to create a new school committed to free expression and higher education, yet both the UNC faculty and the school's accreditor have a meltdown. Plus, President Biden is from the federal government, and he is here to help you by cracking down on junk fees in the economy. Should you want him to, we'll tell you some reasons why you may not. Welcome to Potomac Watch. I'm Kim Strassel, and I am joined today by my two fabulous colleagues, Colin Levy and Alicia Finley. So let's start with this fascinating fight at UNC. In late January, that university, which, by the way, was the first public university in the nation, its board of trustees voted 12-0 to create a school of civic life and leadership. This is going to be a discrete school. It's going to have its own dean. It's going to hire professors to teach in departments ranging from history to philosophy to religion. Students will be able to take courses through it to fulfill their core university requirements or not if they don't want to. And what's really interesting to me is that it's designed to buck ideological conformity. His goal is to get professors from across the spectrum. So let's, in fact, listen for a second to UNC trustee David Bolick talking about that mission. There's no litmus test for the hiring of professors, uh, but clearly a, a, a curriculum uh, with, with the engagement of diverse viewpoints, I think would attract a wide variety of professors, uh, liberal, conservative, centrist, those who can engage students. So, Colin, you've been following this. This sounds to me nothing short of exciting and brilliant. And yet this vote has caused a huge backlash among the faculty. Tell us a little bit about what they are angry about and who is saying what and why. Yeah, it's really an interesting story, Kim. What's happened basically is that the faculty found out about this new school after the Board of Trustees voted on it, and they got very upset about it. They said, that's our prerogative. We're the ones that get to call what's going to be in our curriculum. And I think they felt put out. The chair of the faculty, Mimi Chapman, told the Daily Tar Heel that, you know, she was flabbergasted at the trustees' decision. And other professors said that they were really just shocked that these things were in the press before they knew about them. But the key issue here, we have to remember, is that in North Carolina, the responsibility for the public universities flows from the North Carolina Constitution through the North Carolina legislature and through the Board of Governors and the Board of Trustees. So that's what happened here. And the Board of Trustees was really doing what its duty was to create new spaces for new ideas. And I think the point that you bring up that is really important to address as a substantive issue, which is that, you know, so many outlets have pounced on this as though the idea of creating a new school for ideas is somehow a conservative idea that's going to be pushing a conservative agenda. I've seen nothing here that would suggest that. I don't think that's what the school's going for at all. I think the real idea is not to have some sort of ideological program, but on the contrary, you know, the whole purpose is to create a new vibrant space where people can debate ideas and where new professors will encourage that in their students and encourage them to engage with each other. You know, I'm not sure that we really grasp how much is intellectually gained by students who are forced to defend their ideas on either side to get 
get out of this kind of social media sinkhole that we're all in sometimes where all anyone hears are the voices that they've selected to hear and then similar voices who are selected for them. So, you know, that's true on the left and it's true on the right. And I think people are losing the ability to logically or civilly debate ideas of major consequence. And that's something that our universities are supposed to be providing for us. Yeah. The thing that really struck me about this is you're right, Colin. This is a different idea. And I think it's getting lumped together with some of these programs, which, by the way, are very worthy that you've seen happen as schools have moved ever and ever left. You've seen, for instance, attempts to set up like a discrete program program within a college where existing faculty, they might have a new free speech program or a civic life program, and they'll bring speakers into campus or host lectures. That's not what this school is about. This school is about getting a wide range of voices. And Alicia, it strikes me that, as Colin was saying, something is desperately needed because conservative voices have largely been shut out. But this program's idea is not that. But I remember seven, eight years ago, the University of Chicago claimed that it was committing itself to free expression on campus. And all these universities came out, including some in the Ivy League, to say they bought into this idea. But most of them have failed to live up to it. And what's interesting to me is UNC is attempting to actually live to those ideals. I mean, we do have a problem, don't we, Alicia, on campus with a lack of voices across the spectrum. I think that's right. If you look at this college big survey of 14 humanities and STEM departments at UNC, Democratic professors outnumber Republicans by 16 to 1. In the English department, the ratio is about 23 to 1. And in chemistry, it's 28 to 1, which is kind of unexpected because you typically consider you know, STEM fields and sciences be in college, would we would say that that's a hard discipline, whereas the others are more fuzzy. And that typically the hard disciplines like chemistry, math, computer science, that they tend to be at least less political than the disciplines like you know liberal arts disciplines, English, philosophy, sociology, and such. But what's really also surprising is that at other state colleges, it's not nearly as lopsided. Like at Ohio State, the faculty ratio is seven to one, and for Democrats to Republicans, and at University of Nebraska Omaha. It's only five to one. And that may have to do with where the universities are located and some self-selection there. And which I think it actually is it goes to a broader problem in academia is this self-selection bias that it's become such a hostile place for conservatives that most don't even want to go or get a PhD. Maybe there are other good reasons, economic reasons not to get a PhD because the job market in academia is really limited. But it's also why deal with this? Why deal with the hostility when you're just going to be essentially ganged up upon by your fellow faculty members and deal with administrators who don't respect this free speech and diversity of views? So as a result, I think the universities are becoming much more ideologically homogenous in terms of their faculty. So what UNC is doing is potentially shake things up and, and make campuses a little more welcoming to conservatives, conservatives with PhDs and encourage, therefore, a more diversity in the PhD pipeline. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting to me what you say, Alicia, because as a, a mom who has got kids that are getting to college age, I'm struck by how many other parents I now talk to that are specifically skewing some of the Ivy League and elite schools and, and trying to get their kids to take a closer look at some state universities just because they feel those campuses are a little less woke. But Colin, it's interesting. So great idea, I think. And yes, it's one thing 
for the faculty to complain. But it turns out there is a bigger threat here. UNC is now facing an attack. Southern Association of Colleges and Schools Commission on Colleges. This is a body that accredits UNC, which matters because colleges need accreditation to be eligible for federal dollars. So this is a somewhat powerful outfit, and it's now waiting into this fight. Colin, tell us what's happening here. Right. So it was a meeting last week on Tuesday of the Governor's Commission on the Governance of Public Universities in North Carolina, which in and of itself is sort of an interesting thing because As we talked about before, the responsibility for the universities really flows through the legislature. But governors created this sort of oversight board to talk about what's going on at state schools. And it was at this meeting that the accreditation official, whose name is Belle Whelan, came in and said that the UNC board would be getting a letter of some kind from her agency. And that was immediately perceived to be a potential threat to accreditation. And she basically said, look, we're waiting for the school to explain what's going on here because that's not the way we do business, meaning the trustees were, by creating this school, were sort of breaking the mold of, uh, you know, the faculty monopoly on what's going on there. And that that would somehow threaten the legitimacy of the school, potentially threaten their accreditation. Now, Ms. Whelan went on to say that this was just a letter of inquiry that because this had attracted media attention and she'd heard about this, that it was her group's responsibility to look into what's going on there, and that all that she was going to be doing was issuing a letter of inquiry. But I talked to her and basically asked her, well, if this is, in fact, that the trustees did this, would that threaten their accreditation? And she just emphasized that this was something that was the responsibility of the faculty and uh, ah. nothing exactly reassuring in that, though she did go to say there was, there was a long process here that has to be gone through. But it's a rightful concern because, you know, there's something of a playbook developing here. I think as other schools start to look at the possibility of creating similar institutions the way that the University of North Carolina is in terms of this being a bit of a model, you can see where the pushback is going to come from. The pushback is, well, if you try to do this, we could potentially mess with your ability to get federal funding. You know, I find this very disturbing, although sadly, it's not necessarily unexpected. It brings to mind, Alicia, I think what this is doing is highlighting again, we actually do have a problem with some of these really powerful accreditation boards. And I know the Trump administration tried to change some of the rules because if they came out and went after you, it was essentially a death blow to you. So they have this extreme power. They tried to change the rules to give colleges and universities the opportunity to get approved by different accreditors. Can you tell us a little bit more about that whole situation? I think that's right. And the other initiative that the Trump administration took on the accreditation was to allow for profits in particular, which the Obama administration had tried to, the Department of Education actually has to recognize the accreditors. And so if it doesn't recognize the creditors, the schools that are accredited by the creditors can't qualify for financial aid. And to your point, that's basically a death blow. So it actually, the power really stems at top with the education department. And we've seen uh, numerous times over the last decade or two how the education department and officials there can really abuse their power over the creditors to kind of push their own agendas and drive their political imperatives. I wrote an editorial again more than a decade ago about how a bureaucrat at the financial aid office had pushed a creditor of a for-profit college run by former Massachusetts Governor Bill Well to pull the accreditation of the college 
because he had some kind of essentially a, a vendetta against Bill Weld based on past personal history. And then more recently, the Obama and Biden administrations have pulled the, the recognition of a major creditor for for-profit colleges. And as a result, left these colleges hanging and they've been scrambling to try to find another creditor. But the issue is there just really isn't much competition in the accrediting space. The, many of them have essentially monopolies in their regions or within their sectors. And so the Trump administration tried to encourage more competition and more choice. Yeah, you know, all of which just reminds me again to ask the question, why do we have a Department of Education? Does anything good come from it? We're going to take a break. When we come back, are you the victim of junk fees? And do you trust the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau to save you from them? Maybe you shouldn't when we come back. ADP knows anything you hear, anything you don't hear, anything you kind of heard, anything you weren't supposed to hear and now have to pretend like you didn't can change the world of work. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to take on the next anything. Don't forget, you can reach the latest episode of Potomac Watch anytime. Just ask your smart speaker, play the Opinion Potomac Watch podcast. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Welcome back. I'm Kim Strassel here with Alicia Finley and Colin Levy. If you watched the State of the Union address last week, you undoubtedly caught Joe Biden talking about the menace of what he calls junk fees and his vows that he's going to do something about it. Let's listen to the president talk about that a bit in his speech that night. Junk fees may not matter to the very wealthy, but they matter to most other folks in homes like the one I grew up in, like many of you did. They add up to hundreds of dollars a month. They make it harder for you to pay your bills or afford that family trip. I know how unfair it feels when a company overcharges you and gets away with it. Not anymore. We've written a bill to stop it all. It's called the Junk Fee Prevention Act. We're going to ban surprise resort fees that hotels charge on your bill. Those fees can cost you up to $90 a night at hotels that aren't even resorts. So, Alicia, I've been so busy doing podcasts, I haven't had the pleasure to go to a resort, whether a real one or a fake one. And, and let me just be clear, I don't think consumers should be charged without their consent for products or services they don't want. I don't think businesses should be hiding or surprising consumers with fees of things that they don't know about before they've signed contracts, etc. But Mr. Biden's regulators are targeting, I would argue, in an editorial we had today, argued pretty common business practices that aren't necessarily deceptive or unfair. And given that Congress isn't likely to pass any legislation, we have to assume he's actually going to be deputizing his bureaucracy to pursue this. Can you give us a few examples of what kind of fees he's talking about here and who's going to take the lead? In this case, most of the junk fees that he's talking about, they aren't actually illegal per se. They're essentially price differentiation or unbundling by companies. So what he mentions as resort fees, I had to look this up because I had never heard about this, but this is a term often used by progressives to refer to these fees that hotels charge for accessing amenities like gyms or business centers. Again, customers can get value out of these amenities, and if they want to pay extra for it, they can. A lot of these fees are really you know, about unbundling services that businesses charge. And the 
basically the auto industry. This is one that the Biden administration, the FTC on a rulemaking sites is auto dealers often impose or charge extra for, you know, warranties or service and maintenance plans. And those aren't included in the upfront advertised price for cars. Um, and for good reason, because that's some consumers won't want that. So it'd actually be somewhat deceptive advertising if they included that in the all-in price. Some consumers may end up paying for it, some won't. Another example, and this is what the CFPB is really tackling under Roa Chopra, are the quote-unquote overdraft fees. And CFPB issued guidance last year that would ban surprise overdraft fees. And what they mean by surprise is, let's say you have $100 in your bank account and you have an $80 monthly cable bill automatically withdrawn. Then if you go to use the, your debit card to pay for like $90 pair of sneakers or you know something else, and then you overdraw your account, the bank charges you a fee because you don't have enough money in your account to pay for those $90 pair of sneakers. Now, Chopper calls this a surprise fee, but if you're carefully tracking your balance and your payments, you know that you wouldn't have enough money in your account to pay for it. Another example in the financial space is the credit card late fees. The Dodd-Frank Act actually gave Fed, and then later the Fed transferred this authority to the CFPB, to cap credit card late fees. Now, it was previously capped at $41, and that was essentially considered the cost of basically collecting on the debt and the risk that you know companies incurred with these late fees and, and customers not paying. But now the CFPB is effectively capping it at $8, which could cause these companies, either the banks or financial service companies, to lose money on these credit card customers. So what you'd likely see is them just restricting access to credit for lower income customers who are more likely to incur these late fees. And I think that that's the law of unintended consequences about all these regulations that are intended to go after junk fees is it's going to cause a lot of unintended consequences, actually raise prices and harm consumers in the end. Yeah, you know, it strikes me that the problems here is that I understand why people get angry about this, especially the additional services fees. I understand in my heart why people get frustrated because it used to be often when some of these industries were just starting and you look, for instance, at the airline services, I think about this a lot. Everything was kind of all included. Other than first class, all the sort of seats were the same and you got an automatic meal and your bags were free. And of course, now everyone gets frustrated because your bag isn't necessarily free. You got to pay more for that. If you want to board early, you got to pay to have a special priority pass. If you want a meal, you got to buy it separately from everything. At the same time, by the airlines doing that, not only has it made them more competitive, meaning people can begin to make choices on which airlines are better. It's also presumably helped lower costs so that more people can travel. There's a lot to be said for competition and competition in a lot of different areas. But all that being said, and I understand the economics of it, Colin, the president, clearly thinks that there is enough people out there who are frustrated about this, that this is a political issue. Is that why you think he's pursuing it? What do you think he supposes he's going to get out of this? Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, listening to this, actually, it was almost like the administration just got together over a beer and said, 
okay, we need a good plan. We need to figure (laughs) out what lots of people find annoying and then go after that. So let's go after hotel fees. Let's go after, um, oh yeah, those annoying fees that car dealerships charge. You know, let's find the stuff that like is on everyone's pet peeve list. And then let's go after that. I think that sounds, you know, those ticket fees that happen when you try to get the Taylor Swift concert, we have to get rid of those. So that's the kind of thing that I think he's trying to go for here. I think the point that Alicia's making is very important one, especially on things like the overdraft fees, these banks that provide the free checking accounts, and then they charge these fees. The, the biggest problem is that the overdraft protection is really an important service for people who live paycheck to paycheck. There's one month that there might be a dentist bill that you know needs to be covered the same time as a, a child needs school books, and it pushes a family beyond the usual cash flow in their household budget, the cash they have on hand. So being able to overdraw an account in a pinch is a key service that's provided buy banks to lower income customers. And yeah, there's a fee attached, but getting rid of the fees definitely risks making the bank stop extending that kind of credit or that kind of overdraft protection to the people who need it. Altogether, it's a very political exercise because it's kind of economically pointless. It's a, you know, it's a zero-sum game here. If you ban companies from capturing a source of revenue, they're going to need to make up the gap somewhere else or make up the shortfall from another form of business. So I think there's no question in terms of the Biden administration interest here and just hitting something that everyone can relate to. We can all relate to looking at a hotel bill and going, oh, are you kidding me? This is way higher than I thought it was going to be. But sometimes unbundling works and sometimes it doesn't. And just creating this umbrella rule on it is not probably the best way to handle it. Yeah. By the way, on this point, I would just like to note that to me, biggest surprise fees whenever I go to stay at a hotel are state and local taxes. Maybe we should have some rules hemming those in a little bit. Anyway, great. Thank you so much. Thank you. You, Alicia and Colin. We thank our listeners. We remind them we are here every weekday. You can email us at pwpodcast at wsj.com. And if you like the show, please hit that subscribe button. This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com slash wsj.